Thank you for joining us today. This is Expository Insights with Pastor Lyle Wall. Today we are in the second week of looking at a few of Jesus' parables. Today's parable is in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and poses the question, Am I a good neighbor? In our series on some of Jesus' parables, today we are looking at the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Many of us have known this parable since childhood. There is a danger in considering a familiar passage like this. We might be tempted to let our minds slip into neutral. After all, we've heard this before. We know this. And so it is important to realize that this is God's word for us today, that he has some things for us, perhaps some old things, perhaps some new things. Think about the account of this parable. As we look at it carefully, we find a few curves in what might appear to be a simple, straight road. To many, it's just a picture of the golden rule. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Then there are two questions directed to Jesus in this parable, but he did not answer either one. A lawyer, or expert in the law, first asked, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus had the expert who knew what the law said answer the question himself. The expert's follow-up question was, Who is my neighbor? Jesus, in effect, changed the question to, What is good? and then answered with a story rather than a neat definition. Any careful look at this parable will quickly lead us to neighbors. There are many different pictures of neighbors, good and bad, puzzling and unfamiliar neighbors. While the phrase Good Samaritan is widely known, even used as the name for the largest travel club in North America and as a slogan for an insurance company, Jesus' main point often goes unnoticed. The question Jesus asks each of us to answer today is, Am I a good neighbor? Good and bad examples abound. One night in 2001, a young nurse's aide was not a good neighbor. Driving home on a curved stretch of dimly lit road, she heard a loud bang and then saw a man crashing through her windshield. She stopped briefly, then drove home, parked her car in the garage, with the man still lodged in her car's shattered windshield. She heard him moaning and left him there. The man bled to death. About six hours later, she had two men dump his body in a park. His body was discovered two days later. The medical examiner determined the man would have survived had he received medical treatment and so ruled his death as a homicide. She later was tried and sentenced to 50 years in prison. She clearly was not a good neighbor. The central truth which Jesus is making in this parable is that believers demonstrate their faith by being good neighbors. 
Let's start with correcting the misconception that being a good neighbor makes one a Christian. It does not. The lawyer had some misconceptions. The term lawyer refers to a man who was a scribe. Scribes initially were those who made copies of the Old Testament scriptures. Then they became students, scholars, experts, and defenders of the law. They became judges to administer the law, to make rulings on the finest points of interpretation. Many of them were either Sadducees or Pharisees. Many of the Sadducees were priests, and some of them also held civil positions being concerned about politics. And as a group, they did not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees tended to be conservative, following strict adherence to the law, and did believe in the resurrection. From the question this lawyer asked about eternal life, and his question about neighbors expressing an interest in defining separation, he probably was a Pharisee. Now consider the lawyer's motives. The account begins in verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test. Luke makes it clear that, unlike the wealthy ruler in chapter 18, this man did not have a genuine question or interest. He was trying to trip up Jesus, to discredit him. This is the case even though he began his question by calling Jesus teacher, which was a sign of respect. You see, the question he posed to Jesus was a basic one. So why would he ask this question since he was an expert in the scriptures? He asked the question to begin a debate on fine points where he could show off his great knowledge and skills, and of course, discredit Jesus. Jesus did not get into a debate. In fact, he did not answer the question. He turned the tables on the lawyer. Look at verse 26. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he, the lawyer, answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The scribes tended to be legalistic, that is, to keep books to make sure their credits outweighed the debits, and so, in their thinking, they would be accepted by God, would inherit or earn eternal life. But what do we make of Jesus' answer? Verse 28. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. A casual reading might lead some to think Jesus is saying that if you do this, you will earn your salvation. This is not what Jesus said, and the lawyer knew it. That is why he followed with another question in verse 29. Jesus' words, do this, have the force of, and can be translated as, Keep doing this, or always keep doing this. He is actually pointing out the impossibility of earning eternal life. One slip, one failure, and it is all over. 
trying to earn your salvation is truly mission impossible. No one can keep this, do this consistently, perfectly. Remember what God tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, A person is not justified by the works of the law. And by the works of the law, no flesh, that is, no person, will be justified. The lawyer, like so many people today, missed the point of the law. God gave the law as his standard. Being sinners and imperfect, no one can keep it perfectly. So no one can be saved by keeping the law. It points to God's perfect holiness and also to our sin and inadequacy. It puts our sin under a magnifying glass and drives us to the grace and mercy of God. Loving your neighbor as yourself is an evidence of God's life and character in you. It is not a stepping stone on the path to earning God's favor, to earning eternal life. Man-made religion always has this fatal flaw. Do, 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 and do more. Try, try, try and try harder, and you will make it, or perhaps not. Even in the family of God, we can get caught up into this kind of thinking. We can think that our obedience to God in some way earns his favor. But true obedience to God is a response and evidence of God's love to us. It flows from a pure love for him and a desire to please him because of who he is and what he has done for us in forgiving us, saving us. The first correction is setting aside the misconception that being a good neighbor makes one a Christian. A second correction is setting aside the misconception that it is okay to draw lines to exclude people. Go to verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he, the lawyer, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The lawyer had to justify himself. His plan for a debate had not worked out as he had thought. Jesus' response made the lawyer look amateurish, almost foolish. So trying to save face, he made a second attempt to get a debate going. Jesus' parable deals with neighbors, specifically with Jews and with Samaritans as neighbors. The Jews, by and large, had become rather prejudiced. The Samaritans both received prejudice from the Jews and dished it back to them. It has often been said that the Jews of that time lived in a circular world. At the center of the circle is myself, just myself. The next circle out includes my immediate relatives. Beyond that, there would be the circle of more distant relatives, my tribe. Finally, the last circle in my world would include all who claimed to be Jewish. Everyone else was outside of this circular world. 
the Samaritans were certainly outside the Jewish circular world. The northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 BC. Most of the Jews were exiled to Babylon. The Babylonians moved other people in. Many of the Jews who remained in Israel intermarried with these other people. Their descendants became the Samaritans, whom most of the Jews despised because they were not truly Jewish and had developed their own religious practices. At the end of the exile of the southern kingdom, the Samaritans offered to help the returning Jews build the temple. The Jews rebuffed them, in effect saying, We don't need help from you half-breeds. The Samaritans built their own temple at Mount Gerizim. When Jesus was on earth, the Samaritans lived between the Jews in the south and north, and there was great mutual hostility. The Samaritans were definitely not on this lawyer's list of neighbors. Check out verse 37. When Jesus asked the lawyer to identify who in the parable proved to be a neighbor to the man in need, the lawyer knew it was the Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor to the victim, but he couldn't bring himself to even use the word Samaritan. He said, the one who showed compassion to him. It's not really any different today among all people groups. Lines of exclusion are drawn all over in our world. It's easy to see between Arabs and Israelis and other groups that are in the news, but it can be seen all around the world. These lines of exclusion are not neat designs, but a great crisscross of exclusions based on race, ethnicity, national and regional origin, social class, religion. And, yes, it even exists among some Christians. The old cliché, good fences make good neighbors, is widely practiced. There may be polite acknowledgement, but little to no close involvement. Listen to this work by the prolific writer Anonymous. When I first became a member of the church, my circle was very big, for it included all who, like myself, had believed. I was happy in the thought that my brothers were many, but having a keen and observant mind, I soon learned that many of my brethren were erring. I could not tolerate any people within my circle but those who, like myself, were right on all points of doctrine and practice. Two, some made mistakes and sinned. What could I do? I had to do something. I drew my circle again, leaving the publicans and sinners outside, excluding the Pharisees in all their pride, with myself and the righteous and humble within. I heard ugly rumors about some brethren. I saw then that some of them were worldly-minded. Their thoughts were constantly on things of a worldly nature. So, duty-bound to save my reputation, I drew my circle again, leaving those reputable spiritually-minded within. I soon realized that only my family and myself remained in the circle 
I had a good family. But to my surprise, my family finally disagreed with me. I was always right. A man must be steadfast. I've never been a factious man. So in strong determination, I drew my circle again, leaving me quite alone. A good neighbor does not draw lines to exclude people. Having corrected these misconceptions, let's move on to sharpening the focus of the main truth in the parable that believers demonstrate their faith by being good neighbors. First, we zoom in on what a good neighbor looks like in action. Parables, remember, were used to create a visual picture that would make an impact on the listener and which also could be easily remembered and passed on. They were true-to-life stories designed to picture and teach one spiritual truth, which often suggests others as well. Jesus did not give a detailed nor even a brief textbook definition of his redefined question of who my neighbor is. Rather, he told this parable to show us what a good neighbor looks like in action, what it means to truly demonstrate your faith as a child of God in your relationship to others. Consider the setting of this parable. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 27 kilometers, and it dropped some 1,200 meters in elevation on the way. There are cliffs and gullies on the sides. In biblical times, it was often called the Path of Blood, because while many people traveled the road, it was very dangerous. Criminals lurked along the way to surprise and attack the travelers. And so, we read in verse 30, A man on this road met with some robbers who assaulted him, stole all that he had, including his clothes, leaving him on the road to die. The first picture Jesus draws of what happened next is the negative view, the bad neighbors, a priest and a Levite. The priest, we could fairly assume, was returning from a tour of duty in Jerusalem to his home in Jericho. The Levite, who in broad terms was an assistant to the priests, may have been doing the same thing. Both were clearly religious leaders, men who were to be examples of godliness, love, and mercy. Both saw the man who had been attacked and robbed in his desperate condition. Both stayed as far away from him as they could and passed by without offering any kind of help. Some have suggested both may have tried to justify their actions because, as temple officials, they, in particular, were to remain ceremonially clean. If this man was dead, or died while attending to him, by touching him they would become ceremonially unclean. Beyond this, it is suggested that they may have thought, This is a dangerous place. That poor man lying there proves it. If I stop, I could be the next victim. Placing ceremonial purity above helping a person so seriously injured, so obviously in need, is both selfish and callous. It's the, I don't want to know, 
and I don't want to get involved attitude. Now, we need a couple of cautions here. First, we need to have wisdom, God's true wisdom. Remember that when Jesus sent the twelve disciples on a mission, he told them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wary as serpents and as innocent as doves. We need to be wise at all times, in every situation. Second, remember that we are not to push a parable beyond what Jesus said. He does not speak to the motives of the priest and Levite, so their possible motives are not a point Jesus was making. The second picture, the positive view, we see in the Samaritan. Notice the descriptive phrases Jesus uses in verses 33 and 34 about this man considered to be a half-breed, unclean, and untrusted, or, at best, a hated stepbrother of the pious priest and Levite. He came upon him, the man left half-dead. He was not looking for or expecting this. He saw him. The man and his need caught his attention. He felt compassion. He responded from his heart, not just out of duty or guilt. How different, then, how sharp a contrast to the priest and Levite who, when they saw him, passed by on the other side of the road, staying as far away from the man as they could. He came to him. He was not afraid to get close. He acted, met the immediate needs. But he also went the extra mile, more than treat and run. He put him on his own animal, most likely a donkey. So the Samaritan now had to walk, not ride. He brought him to an inn, where the victim could recuperate. He took care of him. He stayed and kept treating the man despite the inconvenience and delay. Verse 35 tells us he arranged for the man's care. He made an advance payment and promised more as required. He didn't set a limit. Nor did he ask the innkeeper to be a good neighbor and pick up some of the cost. Who is my neighbor? What does a good neighbor look like? Jesus painted a vivid picture. Churches and church people in general should not feel smug or even comfortable here. Think about our responses to people we come across. People who are different. Who are in difficult circumstances. Who are not comfortable to be around and who are in need. Think about the pressure of personal priorities, agendas, even good ones, even ministry-related ones. A seminary professor once scheduled all his students to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan to other students. One by one, they were to go from classroom to classroom, preaching love and compassion for others. The schedule was tight 
They had just a few minutes to rush out of a class where they had preached and then to the next one. In doing this, the students had to walk down a corridor passing by a beggar who had been planted there by the professor. The number of would-be preachers who stopped to help or even check on this man was very, very low. For most of them, in rushing to preach their sermon about the Good Samaritan, they walked right past the beggar and right past the central message of the parable. If you want to know who your neighbor is and what your responsibility is, look at and remember the picture in this parable. This is what a good neighbor looks like in action. We might be tempted to say to ourselves, okay, but with all I'm dealing with, I don't think I can deal with this right now. That brings us to the necessity for Christians to be good neighbors. Yes, we know that being a good neighbor does not make you a Christian, that a good neighbor does not draw lines to exclude others. We know something of what a good neighbor looks like and does not look like, that we are to be a good neighbor. But we may still ask, who is my neighbor? In short, Jesus tells us, he shows us, it is anyone we come upon, anyone we see in need. But that isn't the main question Jesus is focusing on here. His focus is on, am I a good neighbor? Let's go back to the summary of the law quoted by the lawyer in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, a person who has seen and known the love of God, who truly loves God, will love his neighbor. Yes, it is a process of growing, just as our love for God is a process of growing. But there will be definite evidence. Jesus' command to the lawyer was, Go and do the same. Go and do. Keep doing. Always keep doing the same thing the Samaritan did. Practically, how should we, how can we live out God's love and compassion? How can we be a good neighbor? Yes, keep on doing the same thing as the Samaritan, but what specifically? Here are five practical steps to take. Number one, be aware. Be aware of both your responsibilities and also of your opportunities. Always be aware. Don't rush down the hallways of your days without noticing what and who is around you. Number two, be responsive. The priest and Levite were aware they saw the man and his need, but they were not responsive. Loosen up. Loosen up time, priorities, expectations. Go beyond the fences to have contact and involvement, good fences as well as bad ones. Number three, draw circles of inclusion rather than exclusion. 
consciously, actively include rather than exclude. Number four, take some risks. Yes, it is scary at times, and yes, there are those who will try to take advantage of you, to con you. And remember what Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wary as serpents and innocent as doves. Over the years, a good number of strangers have come to my office asking for help. Sadly, most have tried to con me. I have always tried to hear them out, set down a few basic guidelines so they know how we will relate, and when in doubt, choose to help rather than not to help. I haven't always had 20-20 vision, but I keep going on and learning. Finally, number five, keep Jesus' perspective. Jesus had priorities. Jesus spent the greatest amount of time with his disciples in keeping with his priorities. But Jesus also spent time, took time, to reach out to those who were in need. Believers demonstrate their faith by being good neighbors. So, once again, the question, am I a good neighbor? Jesus wants each of us to ask ourselves that question and answer it candidly, honestly. Remember the insurance company's motto, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Can we say, like a good neighbor, I am there? Then collectively, what can we say about Peachland Baptist Church? Is our church, this family of believers, a good neighbor? As I look at the past that I know and the present, I see a willingness, desire, and actions of being a good neighbor. A good neighbor locally and having contact with our community. Yes, there also is more we can do. A good neighbor beyond the community in our commitment to missions, both foreign and here in our area and in North America. Also remember the words of Galatians chapter 6. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. As well, we are aware that caring both counts and costs. Here is where we need God's wisdom. Here is where we need God's comfort, encouragement, and healing as we continue to demonstrate our faith by being good neighbors. Take time to think with God about this, and thank God for the clear picture that he gave us in Jesus' parable. Examine your heart, your attitudes, your actions. Thank God for the opportunities he has given you. Confess your failings. Renew your commitment. Bow with me in prayer. God, our Father, thank you for your great love for us your love in action in sending Jesus to die for us and in every aspect and day of our lives. Forgive us for times when we have thought and acted more like the priest and Levite in the parable than the Samaritan. Help us to be aware, responsive, including others, to take risks, 
and keep Jesus' perspective. We pray in his loving and caring name. Amen.